Being an expert sucks. As a teacher of spiritual intelligence and emotional health, I get cornered into being the guy who has all the answers. I'd like to take this opportunity to make a confession. I don't. What I do have are convictions. I have theories. I have questions. I find myself looking around and I'm like, we can't stay here. Stop setting up your tent. We can't stay here. Through my journey, it's become evident that being a participant is no longer enough. It's time to become reformers. These are my confessions. To get deeper in this conversation, visit MikeMayashiro.com. Hey, gang. I'm excited for this interview. This is with my friend Rocky Roggio. She is the director of a movie called 1946 that has not come out yet, but it's coming out hopefully this year. I think the subtitle is A Mistranslation That Shaped a Generation. Anyway, Rocky and I are friends. We've been in the same places a few times this last year, and every time we're together, we hang out, and she cracks me up. It's rare for me to hang out with Rocky and not be like crying or like gasping for breath because I'm laughing so hard. That doesn't really happen in this interview. I just thought you should know that. <laughs> Because while the conversation we have here is pretty focused and intentional, um, I have such affection and appreciation for who Rocky is as a person. And then obviously the work she's doing is super important, and I'm really thankful to get to like platform her here. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Um, the whole point of her coming on here was to talk about and engage with what's coming out with this film and hoping that this film is going to have the impact that she was hoping for in terms of acknowledging and recognizing the distortion that has come from poor biblical translations and how that has negatively impacted the queer community. So buckle up, let's go. I hope you enjoy it. Here's Rocky. All right, you guys, This I'm here with Sharon Rocky Roggio. She is the director of the film 1946 that's coming out this year, but also Rocky is just a super cool human being that I would love for you to get to know and experience her story and her perspective and all that. Rocky, thanks for being here. I also just want to clarify my audience knows this, but anybody that I'm interviewing, you have full permission to say whatever you want to say, however you want to say it. I'm not interested in like censoring you. And we all get, just get to deal with, if you offend us, you say things we don't like, that's our deal. And we get to work that out. You get to say and be whoever you are. Yeah. I love that. No, this is fun because I remember we first met each other at the Reformation Project in Phoenix just yep. this last October. And, you know, you have an instant presence in the room and you were so gracious. And we just, inst I thought we instantly clicked. Oh, so sure. now- um, having spent some time in Nashville and then, you know, learning a little bit about each, each other's story. I think this will be an awesome opportunity for us to get any, to know each other a little bit better. Uh, exactly. That's perfect. <laughs> That's perfect. There are things about your story, Rocky, that I don't know that I want to hear, but I also just want people to get to know you and where you're coming from and all this. So would you mind just for people who have no idea who you are or where you're coming from, would you mind just giving us a brief little intro as to who you are? How did you get here? Yeah, sure. I think my story is kind of typical. I grew up in um, an evangelical family. We went to church every Sunday. My dad's a minister, which might not be very typical, but it was the only thing that I knew really growing up was just family and family values and prayers before meals, occasional soccer practice and things like that. And, and, and life is good. But within that whole evangelical bubble, even as a young child, I was always labeled as the troublemaker because I would question, right? Within a lot of my questions, I would notice things going on as far as like, my dad is a benevolent man. He lives everything that he says he, he does, you know, he's a good man. But I would hear things like our brand of Christianity is the 
right brand of Christianity. So I guess I should say growing up as, as somebody in the faith and then later realizing they're LGBTQ, that's a big part of this too. Early on in my development, I immediately, before even knowing I was LGBTQ, had a separation with what I was being taught in church because I was seeing what was set up as an us versus them, even within the body of Christ, which was really confusing as a child because it's like, shouldn't we all like, why are the Lutherans doing it wrong? And oh my goodness, those Methodists, they're so wild, you know? And then I, from other denominations, I would hear it too. Growing up, I was I was very fortunate to have such a great family to shelter me, but I was very confused. So you grew up in a Christian home, and then at some point along the way, you discover you're of the LGBTQ plus community within a Christian evangelical context. Do you remember what that part of your journey was like? How did you process through that? How long did you wait till you finally decided to come out? What was that like? Well, I didn't really have a coming out experience. I was found out. And so as I was developing and going through puberty or even just being a young kid, I, I can remember being about five years old and realizing that there was something off with what I was being presented is the only way to, you know, this heteronormative reality that we're exposed to every single day in television shows, in the prom that you're supposed to be all excited for, you know, I'm like, who am I going to marry? Even at five years old, I'm like, this just doesn't work out. About that same time, around five years old, I remember watching something that seemed like a 2020 news special on the television and it had, it represented two women. And this was like the early eighties. And so it was a big deal. Like LGBTQ people were coming out of the closet lesbians were having turkey baser babies, you know, and so the world was going, you know, like there, what's going on with this new freedom in the community. So I was exposed to something like that, which I'm really grateful for, because here's the power of media, right? And, um, and, and actually seeing our stories represented in the world. So I remember being about five years old, and I saw this clip, and I immediately identified with it. I knew that that was me, but I couldn't, I knew right away that I couldn't tell anybody about it. You know, I had to keep it a secret at five. Then I still didn't really know what it was, you know, and I, I grew up and I was a bit of a tomboy. And again, the troublemaker, the deacon of my dad's church told my mother that you're going to have trouble with this one kind of thing. But now looking back, I'm like, hmm, if I were born a male, would I have been labeled the troublemaker? Because I questioned so much, I probably would have been labeled the leader. I kept it a secret, but then as you go through puberty and you have crushes and my crushes were on girls, you know, and not guys, uh, it was really hard to hide. So my parents suspected my dad, God bless his soul was just concerned for me and he violated my privacy. He violated my trust, but he did it because he came from a genuine place. He really believed that I would be going to hell because I had the same sex attraction. So because of his concern for me, he found and read my diary and then confronted me on it, which as you can imagine, didn't go very well. There was a big clash. Uh, I left home, you know, uh, I was 18. And so he had given me basically, he wrote a 10 page letter uh, telling me with all the clobber passages, you know, it was a really negative letter. And at the end of the letter, he says, I have to live under these rules, basically. Part of it included conversion therapy. Like he really believed that I could change. So I left. I ran away, I think, because of the aggressiveness of this letter 
that I didn't really feel love and compassion. It just felt everything that I experienced growing up in the church, these exclusive notes of you have to do it this way, but then also being equated a homosexual as they use in the first Corinthians six, nine, and 10, which is what the movie is about. The thesis of the movie is wrapped around that verse. And you look at all of the things that are going on in that verse. And it's like, I haven't done anything wrong. I'm just me, you know? And so it was an attack on me and my identity. So I no longer felt safe. I just knew it was wrong, but I knew I wasn't wrong, you know? So I fled, I just left and I've been on my own ever since. I ran away and ran away for good. It's been 20 years of, of a struggle trying to balance this relationship because immediately, of course, my mother was quite upset. And she said, Sal, you better go get my daughter. You know, they went looking for me and it's been ups and downs, as you can imagine. The only thing that I could do now later is forgive my dad because I know. I believe that our oppressors, that our family, I believe that they're victims of bad theology just like we are. And so if we can understand that we've all been fed this lie for so long, and again, he was coming from a genuine place that he was, he's caring for me. He wasn't being aggressive or violent, cursing me out. He, he really was just like, we need to fix this and we can fix this. And here's how, and he handed me the Bible. And so I ran away. <laughs> Now I'm making a documentary about the Bible and um, I'm basically directing a Christian film. It was like, I was today years old when I realized I'm making a Christian movie. <laughs> What's going on with this movie? Tell us about yeah, it. Yeah, so I'm making a movie called, right now the working title is 1946, The Mistranslation That Shifted a Culture. And it's about the first time the word homosexual appeared in the Bible. And what it does is it affords us an opportunity to really look into how Bibles are made, how translations are made, how committees are formed, and how we got the Bible that we read today, which is something that people don't really think about. And I think it's something that makes our film unique. It also does an apologetic on the clobber passages, which clobber passages would be defined as a verse that is used and or pulled out of context to attack, to assault, essentially. There are a approximately six clobber passages in the Bible that are used to attack the LGBTQ community. So we look at those verses. Um, but our story is also, you know, as it's a journalistic piece, an academic piece, a theological piece, it's also a relation piece, because it's very important to include all of those. So we, we see that relationship is very important in this whole discussion. And I hope that people, no matter what side of the fence that you're on, will go and see this movie from a history point of view, from a political point of view, and again, from that relational point of view, whether you're Christian or not, I believe that this message will speak to everyone. Uh, and we've been screening the movie and it's been testing as such. And so I hope that people will just give it a chance and let us tell the story so that hopefully we can have bigger conversations around how the Bible is made, interpreted, and used, and or abused as a weapon. So cool. I love that you're doing this. So, I mean, I've seen, I've pre-screened it twice now. I've had the privilege of getting to be in a couple of different spaces where you were pre-screening it. And so you've seen the movie change too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I saw it back in October and then I saw it again in February. And it's just been amazing to watch the evolution and like just the added value you keep putting in. It's such a great piece. Just, it's so, like you described those different elements, they're in there and just really addressing. One of the things that I've had to face since I came out publicly, most of the sincere Christians who've responded to me, responded to me have been like, how do you reconcile what you're saying with the Bible, right? It's just this huge hangup for 
the Christian world, which I understand, right? So the film definitely gets into the heart and then gets into the mechanics behind how did we get here and the theology and so helpful. Definitely watch the movie, you guys. It's it's, it's eye-opening. It's so helpful. And just, and if you're queer, it just, it's a, for me, it felt like, oh God, there's, it's amazing this is being like, like my voice is being represented and the, the hurt that I've experienced and the pain and the labor and where it came from is being acknowledged. Like that's just been so healing. So I, it's such a great, yeah. And for anybody who is queer that's left the church or anybody who has just a vengeance against the church, like we totally understand and we feel with you, you know, this is not honestly like it, this isn't an evangelist piece. This is really just getting honest about 22 men who sat in a room that made a decision that impacts all of us. I just want to acknowledge because I we spent a lot of time on TikTok and there is that community that is really hurt. I really feel for, for anybody who's been hurt by the church and we have a really big problem. I would say though, the church isn't going anywhere and we need to address the problem from within the church. So I just hope that people can acknowledge the work that we're trying to do, even if you don't agree with staying and working within Christian roots or working within Christianity at all. It's a, it's a complicated topic. It's a tricky assignment. In your process of going through your own personal journey, right, of your own sexual identity and your family history and religion, all those things to now producing a film around this, how did this come about? What was the thought process or the what were the circumstances that led you to this being a thing? Sure. Yeah. So that's a fun story. Um, so within the challenge that I've had with my parents and my sexuality, and, you know, it's really hard to not have your family in your life. And for me, I never went back to church for about 20 years. But in 2017, I met a woman who told me she was a Christian and she wanted us to go to church. So I started going to church to honor this relationship. And in that, now as an adult, going back to church, I realized a bigger problem that stems, and it's right in our church buildings, it's in our church system, because here I was in Los Angeles in a progressive church that wants to welcome everyone with radical love, and they see you for who you are, but it's all bullshit, because at the end of the day, I can serve the coffee, but I can't lead a Bible study, you know, and they're hiding those things from you. And that was the, what upset me the most. And so I started getting vocal and I took a class uh, at this progressive church that presented itself as affirming, but it was not. We were doing a class on just anything past the Bible, you know, and the second week was on sin. And I came out, I said, this is why I have a problem with the church, because what I have, you call sin, and I don't think it's sin. And it started a whole conversation. And the leader in that room, you know, was like, oh, what do you mean? And I, I said the same thing, I would never be able to lead this Bible study. And she's like, well, are you sure? And I was like, well, if you don't even know your own bylaws, then this church has a bigger problem. So one, you're either lying to me because you know the bylaws because you probably had to sign something or number two, you know, like we're missing something here, you know? So it really just started to, I just started to challenge that church. And then within that challenging, I was right. There were bylaws uh, that were private to the congregation and only available to staff members. And I got a copy of these bylaws emailed to me. And in the body of the email from who it sent, was sent to, it said, do not share this with anyone outside of leadership. And in those bylaws, they listed three clobber passages. They talked about divorce. Of course, they talked about abortion, all of the standard things. But, you know, it's very clear to them that homosexuality is a sin. And the married couple, the married situation is like that supreme, you know, it just felt 
really awful. Honestly, it felt like I was going through a breakup because I was so upset to have what I was feeling in that space, that welcome, but not equal, and then have it validated in paper from the lead pastor. And I wasn't even supposed to know about this. You know, it was like, you just feel like your heart is being ripped out because you start to get involved in these churches, you build relationships and friendships, you know, and then it's just in a moment crushed. It was like reading the letter from my dad. Do you remember the first incident that you were like, oh, this isn't as affirming as I thought it was. I'm curious what happened. What did that look like? The first couple of weeks, I did not see past the smoke and mirrors. And honestly, I really enjoyed the sermons. They were well constructed. The pastor was engaging. They were current, but biblical. You know, it was really fun. Uh, and I was like, okay, I can get into this. But you start seeing the subtle hints. You know, who's in leadership? How many women are on the stage? How many people of color are on the stage? You know, so I just, I just think I had this spider sense of just being aware and maybe because I'm queer and my past experience with the church. But then I would see things like they would talk about the men's group. And then as they're showing the video for the promotional weekend, it's an extreme close-up of the wedding ring, you know, that kind of stuff. And I'm just like, oh man, this is not an affirming church, you know, just little signs like that. And then when I was in that Bible study class with the church, um, it was really, I did feel comfortable. I did feel safe in that church enough to come out. Um, and it was a really great mix of people, group of people. Uh, and so look, I've, I've never been one to shy away from saying what's on my mind. So, uh, you know, I just kind of, you know, let's see how everybody reacts when I throw this grenade in the room. And, uh, I just went there, I, you know, I don't know how else to, you know, put it, but I just, my instincts, I think it was just my instincts, but those would be the signs I would say to look for. Okay. So there wasn't like an incident, nothing happened. that was like, Oh, this is so wrong. It was like, you're just noticing little hints and symptoms. Totally symptoms. Okay. Yeah. I would yeah. say symptoms, you know, yeah. it only took a couple of weeks for me to really start picking up on those subtle hints that then made me just say out loud is this an affirming space, you know, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, and I wasn't getting a straight answer. I wasn't getting a straight answer from either of the leaders in that Bible study I was taking. I was just, oh, well, you know. And then the, the, the straight guy in the room, you know, well, they probably, who knows where they are, whatever. But the married guy in the room was like trying to compare his, you know, previous sexual desires with being an LGBTQ person and just throwing out Bible verses. And all of us in the room were like, oh man, come on, man. That's not even like close to what we're talking about. But the thing is, is that these churches are all over the place. And my biggest concern is that they're hiding it from you. That's what, it, it's just being dishonest. Like at least a church like my dad's church, you know where they stand. It's on their website. You know, you don't have to question. And then you can make a choice whether you want to start to build a relationship with that community or not. Totally. I get that for sure. I mean, yeah. I don't know that I would have understood it as much before I came out, but having gone through that experience and then the demand or the standard for honesty has just shot through the roof in my life. And I, there are so many things I used to let happen that I can't tolerate anymore. I'm like, this is not acceptable. I totally get that. You hadn't been part of a church congregation for years up to that point. Is that right? Like 20 years. I had been out of the church for about 20 years. I mean, I would go back and sometimes to my dad's church, Christmas, Easter, you know, that kind of stuff. The woman you were with who ended up being the reason you went back to church, was she with you at the Bible study when all this was happening? No, I did the Bible study solo. When you dropped the grenade, how long before you ended up having to actually leave the church? I stayed for quite a while. 
actually. I stayed for maybe another almost year until I decided one day just not to go anymore. And the reason why I decided not to go anymore, I was sitting in the congregation and the lead pastor started talking about their, like he had this vision for the church and somebody had just gifted them a six figure to open another building. And they were going to open three two different sites to have three buildings open, which to me was like, okay, you're just now looking to make money because you're going to still be the lead pastor. You're not asking anybody else to take over those churches and you're going to stream yourself to those other buildings. You know what I mean? Like it was just, that was my big red flag. I'm like, I don't need to keep supporting this church anymore. And I was tithing there. So then from there, that uh, that experience challenged me to dig deeper. And so I learned about affirming spaces, which I was so far removed from church that I didn't even, I didn't even realize that affirming spaces existed. I would see pride flags outside of church buildings, but I just never thought about it, nor did I care. And much like I was talking about with the ex-Christian LGBTQ community, nobody wants to go back to that space because we've been hurt so much, you know? So I was so far removed from church. I, I just didn't even realize that within a half a mile of my house, there were a couple different affirming spaces that were very welcoming and awesome. And so I took a class on homosexuality in the Bible at one of these classes at one of these churches. In that class, I learned for the first time the two Greek words, maloquine or sinequetai, which we discuss in our film, that are used in 1 Corinthians in the original Koine Greek that were combined to mean homosexual. I had never heard of anything like that before. And it wasn't, the 1946 conversation wasn't started yet. I didn't know about Kathy and Ed yet. It just was a class on basically what we know many other scholars to talk about that these verses and this sin list in first Corinthians is a list that condemns vices that are habitual, that are aggressive, exploitative, that have an economic connotation to them that have a victim attached to it. You know, these kinds of things, you know, it made sense. Cause even like when you hear drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it's like, well, I like to go out and have a couple beers every once in a while, but we're not talking about people who in, partake in spirits. We're talking about people who are not living up to their roles in society because they're habitually drunk. They're habitually hurting their body and their spirit and their mind, which hurts the community, you know? And, and so I was like, wow, this is really interesting. Maloquine or Sinequoitai. And in that class, there was a woman who went to the same church that I was just talking about, who had since left because she asked the pastor if she could get married in that church. And he said, no. And so she was finally like, I'm done. I'm out. We had heard of each other. I think there was another woman in my class that told me about this woman, Tracy, because she was so vocal when she left. And so she was in this class on homosexuality in the Bible. And we instantly were like, oh my goodness. Yes. I was at that church, you know, and she's the one who told me about Kathy Boldock. So I went home that night and I binged watched Kathy Boldock and I watched about six hours of Kathy. And then I was just like amazed in the middle of the summer. Okay. I had already told my group at the non-affirming church at this Bible study group that I was going to make a documentary trying to find affirming theology to get common ground with my non-affirming parents. Because in that Bible study, we started to talk about different verses that could affirm the LGBTQ community, which we don't have time to get into right now. Maybe that's another podcast session. So that was August of 2018. September of 2018, I meet Tracy. I binge watch Kathy Boldock. And then I found out that Kathy was coming into town three weeks later. Kathy's speaking at an iconic church at Hollywood and Highland, the first United Methodist church, beautiful church. And my parents were coming into town. My non-affirming parents who used to 
God bless their soul. They love me so much. Make me go to loved one out. That's like a focus on the family, James Dobson type conversion therapy convention. So I went to one of those lovely weekends. But you loved it. It sounds like it was, well, it was in Fort Lauderdale. So at least I got to hang out with the gays on the weekend, um, (laughs) which mom and dad don't know that part of the story. My parents were coming into town and I was like, well, I'm just going to put everybody in a room. My parents will go to this conference because they love me so much. And I invited them to the conference. I wrote Kathy a letter. I asked her if I could film and she said, yes. And I'm a filmmaker. And I said, I was going to make a documentary trying to find affirming ground, you know, um, common ground with my non-affirming parents. And I just started filming. Um, So was that your first footage of the documentary that you started was then? Correct. So that scene where Sal confronts Kathy and Ed, at the end of the conference, that was the first day that we started filming on 1946. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Crazy. Interesting. Well, I didn't know what we were going to get. And so when I was sitting in this conference and I heard this research, I was just like, I have to tell this story because here we have now tangible letters pulled from the archives that these two beautiful researchers, Kathy and Ed, had discovered. They wanted to, they were the only ones to really ask the question, who made this decision and why? And then when they found the letters in the archive, I'm like, this is that tangible piece of evidence that I feel will will lead to bigger conversations. You know, if we can just, again, understand how the Bible is made, how 22 people sat in a room and made this decision, you know, that impacts all of us. Uh, Hopefully then we can at least have more sows, even if they're not able to still see it, because I don't think my dad will ever really see it. But gosh, he loves me so much, you know, and he's not trying to hurt me. And there are so many parents out there that are hurting their children because of what they think the Bible says. So anyway, so I was sitting in this conference. I was like, I have to tell this story. Now, my dad had a different experience. I mean, when you're sitting in a conference and Kathy's talking about penetration, patriarchy and procreation for six hours, that's embarrassing enough. But no, he wanted to know if the Bible had any affirming passages at all. And of course, the answer is no. And that's a very obvious reason. When you say it's a very obvious reason why there isn't any affirming theology in scripture, can you just in one minute? Yeah, give them- sure. So, you know, the Bible was written by men, primarily for men, because men were the only audience that could really read. You know, women really just got the right to vote less than 70 years ago or whatever it was, you know, in our country, which is just really, um, it's my dad's lifetime. That's, that's, wow, you know, there were decisions that were made on how the Bible was put together and how it became canonized. And these are, you know, not that it doesn't separate from the inspired word of God. You know, this is not an attack on the Bible. This is not an attack on on God or God's word, you know, but we need to be honest about how these things were constructed. The Bible presupposes heterosexuality also because that was their only understanding. And that's why also the Bible never talks about homosexuality because they have no understanding of it. And the data supports that. And anybody who suggests otherwise are being led with their dogma. They're too blind to see past that, you know, and really just look at the data. And that's all we're asking people to do when you don't have to get rid of your faith. And it actually just adds more to the mystery. Otherwise, then what we have is the thing that I noticed as a child, we're doing it right and you're doing it wrong. And that's the fundamental problem with Christianity, I think, today. Instead of actually just embracing one another and that love thy neighbor message, you know, and loving like Christ loved the church, that's what's really missing. How do we turn that switch on? So I'm sorry, when I say it's obvious to me, I've been doing this work now for the last three, three and a half years. So I'm just like bursting to get it out and help share this information to make it more accessible to people to understand. There is such a desire 
There's such a hunger for, please help me understand how in the world the Bible could possibly be supporting or endorsing something like a gay person being honored and celebrated by God. There's a very real audience out there who needs answers here. So I'm doing what I can to give them things as we go, but your film would be such a, an incredible option for them to get to sink their teeth into. You guys, this movie is gonna be such a help. One thing I'm running into in my process of dialoguing, especially with Christians about becoming affirming or just you know affirming theology, the level of indoctrination in religious spaces is so intense. Most people are raised in it, right? Like before their brain is even fully formed, they're being told how to perceive the world and all this, I, right? So like for people like you and me in this part of this conversation, how do you step into a place where you you can be constructive and help them undo some of the, you know, intense biases that they were raised with without violating yourself as a queer person in that conversation? I think that it's really difficult and I haven't had to do this yet in in real life the pushback at least on tiktok is just i'm right you're wrong and you know and everybody goes to genesis genesis one and the one man one woman so again people are just trying to pull and proof text their identity their own identity politics around what we've been indoctrinated with I my goal is to get everybody to see the movie and then we'll see how I handle it my advice to anybody who is who does need to address this right now is try to remember that I believe our oppressors are victims of bad theology just like we are and so if we can remember that they're just people on the other side who have been fed this lie for so long I don't know how to unravel it I don't I don't have an answer, Mike. I thought I did, but I don't. Oh. No, it's great. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, that's a little comforting because it makes me feel less crazy. Here's something that we see a difference in and something that our movie does address. When David wrote the letter to Dr. Weigel in 1959, Dr. Weigel had no idea what a homosexual was, just like the writers of the Bible didn't know what homosexuals were. And Dr. Weigel was so open to hearing young David, a 21-year-old seminary student, enough to do this back and forth letter exchange to say, you know what? I think you have a point here and I hear you and I'm listening. We don't see that as Kathy and Ed say in the movie with scholars today who even have, a, as Ed says, a fraction of the education that Dr. Weigel had. But here's what I've recognized. Again, it's about how committees are made. They would never hear that person because they put the committees together to have the Bible say that it condemns homosexuality, period. Like the ESV would be the worst example of this. So you'd better believe they would never even want to hear anything like this. And they, and they are definitely feeling challenged because we hear it, we see it every single day. Somebody just wrote a book trying to debunk our two and a half minute trailer. They published a book, you know? And it's like, how can you possibly know what our movie is about? You know, I mean, you know the premise, but why don't you wait until it's released yet and then maybe we can have a conversation. And that concludes part one of the two part interview I did with Rocky. Hope you enjoyed it. Check out the next one. Um, also, if you are queer and you're a Christian and you're looking for help and support in reconciling your faith with your sexuality, you're in luck. Uh, you should check out The Rainbow Room. This is a group that I host every week for queer Christians who are doing the work of detoxifying their theology and finding their acceptance and affirmation in their spirituality. Um, the link is provided in the show notes if you want to check that out. And then if you're not queer, but you are an ally or you want to be an ally or you're doing the work of becoming a better, more robust, functional ally to the queer community, I would highly encourage you to check out our allies group. I'll provide that, that link in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for listening and please check out part two.
Listen, there's more where this came from. If you want to see how deep this rabbit hole goes, check out MikeMyashiro.com.